0: And then he also said, I like to intimidate them by holding up their resume, if they have a printed one, or their LinkedIn, and just sort of like dismissively throw it to the side on my desk and say, I don't see anything impressive in this resume that would make me want to hire you. And I'm like, oh, so you you try to intimidate the person who's right out of the gates, it sounds like. And the guy's like, yeah, yeah, you know, just really put pressure on them to see if they crack and see if they can handle the culture here. And so I asked the guy, you know, is it working or not working? He said you know, it's not really working because people don't really come back (laughs) for follow-up interviews. And I said, okay, well, I just said, look, I'm going to tell you some tough love just because I want this to be useful to you. But like your entire approach to interviewing is is all wrong. So whatever you're doing, like don't ever do any of that ever again. And let's talk about a better approach yet to treat people with respect.
1: Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate podcast. Our quote for today is from Jim Collins and it is great vision without great people is irrelevant. Our guest today, Dr. Jeff Smart, is one of the world's leading thinkers on how to hire and lead the best people. He's the founder and chairman of GH Smart, a leading global management consulting firm for talent, and the co author of three best selling books. One of those books, Who? The A Method for Hiring, is a New York Times bestseller and is considered a leading resource on helping any business make better hiring decisions and develop top talent. Jeff has personally advised three governors, a White House fellows, and a president of One World Bank. And I'll just throw in some personal commentary here, which is that every meeting I have been in with businesses or board uh, recently, people are just talking about how getting people uh, is their number one challenge. And, and you all have the top, top person here today. So all of your problems are about to be solved i so Jeff, <laughs> like to set the bar high. So Jeff, with that, welcome. Uh, I'm excited to have you on the Elevate podcast. Great, Bob. It's great to be here. Thank you. So before starting your business career, you got a PhD in psychology, becoming the youngest PhD recipient, I think, in the history of your school. What compelled you to pursue a PhD degree at such a young age?
0: Let's see here. So winding the clock way back, after my first year at college. I was studying economics, and everyone you know, was going to be marching off to investment in banking jobs or consulting jobs, uh, maybe corporate. And I had this idea for a business. And so um, this is kind of when venture capital and private equity was, was just sort of picking up steam. The idea was, what if we helped people who were investing in businesses do a better job of evaluating the people part And so that idea was with me through college and then it made me want to go get some extra training in the area of evaluating leaders. So that's why I went off to grad school, got a PhD in psychology, but it was mostly business psychology around um, how organizations operate, leadership, et cetera. So that was the the motivation for going off and and, uh, studying this topic more in depth.
1: And you had a little bit of this in your blood, right?
0: Yes. yes. Yeah. I grew up so my father was an industrial psychologist. I have um, a whole extended family of people in various places around psychology and sociology. So um, yeah, the thought in the back of my mind when I started my firm in 1995 was there is a whole world of of how to systematically look at leaders and teams. That's you know the world of industrial psychology. My father is in that field. I was aware of it, and yet here's this big world of whether it's companies or, you know, venture-backed startups where a lot of their pain and suffering is coming around, you know, putting the wrong people in the wrong places and destroying jobs and destroying the value of businesses. So if you put the two together, um, that was the sort of kernel of uh, insight in why I chose this field and why I started my firm.
1: So the dinner discussions, there must have been a lot, a lot of psychoanalysis at your uh, dinner table as a kid.
0: Definitely. Yeah, my, my, my dad was a psychologist. My mom was a speech therapist. So, uh-huh. uh, yeah, I got a lot, of, a lot of constructive coaching along the way.
1: And did your views on hiring and leadership come, how much came from your, your research or, or uh, you know, some of your, your dad's work or what was the, what was yours from what you studied and where, where did you kind of grow up with certain beliefs that you sort of followed with?
0: Sure. Yeah. So, the early influences were, let's see, my father's or best practices around interviewing was, you know, very helpful. It's a very narrow topic. Um, I studied with Peter Drucker in graduate school for wow. four years. So, being able to hang out with the father of management, like literally, like if you look up Peter Drucker in Wikipedia, you know, he's considered the father of the whole field of management. So, to say that he wasn't, you know, influential <laughs> in shaping my thoughts about management would be a great oversight. So, you know, all of Peter Drucker's work on entrepreneurship the effective executive, just sort of like how to lead teams that focus on talent, how quote unquote culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? A famous Peter Drucker quote. So all that was, you know, hugely influential. Uh, My actual dissertation study was on how venture capitalists evaluate the people that they invest in. And so, you know, I looked at Fifty years of research on you know methods used in due diligence and and you know how to evaluate people, and then did a bunch of original work to sort of see were there specific practices that led to investing in the right people and actually having those deals make money versus investing in the wrong people and losing out so the idea of uh, creating criteria lists and scorecards and collecting data and putting up you know, management due diligence next to financial or market due diligence, um, all that came uh, out of my research project.
1: Studying with Drucker, that's pretty amazing. I, I, now I have to ask you, so like, cool. what was your top takeaway from what did you learn the most or what was your big insight from from working with Peter Drucker?
0: Ambition, I guess. So he profiled a lot of super successful leaders over the time that I knew him. And Drucker had this this kind of like uh, undertone of respect for people who created bold visions hmm. and then architected the teams and the organizations to go make it happen. So I don't know, you know, if that's one thing or three things, but what I learned from him was a mindset of don't limit yourself too much. You know, think about what's really valuable for the world, what's valuable for customers. What's, what would be a great culture for employees and then like go make it happen. He was a real tough love guy. So he had this gruff Austrian accent and nothing you could say, Bob was, was like the final word. He always had something to correct you on or not shame you for um, though. I I was shamed by him in class more than once, but he was really like a think bold and then know what you're talking about. or, Or kind of some of the lessons I got from Peter Drucker.
1: So tell us a little bit about GH Smart and and why you started it and and what you do and how you kind of brought all these principles into helping other companies.
0: Yeah. And it's a great segue from the Peter Drucker thing. I wrote the GH Smart business plan for a class in huh. Peter Drucker's class. So Bob, like I can't make this kind of stuff up. Like this is yeah, so I was going to say that,
1: that's too good to be true.
0: I mean, imagine, you know, rolling up your sleeves and sitting shoulder to shoulder with Peter Drucker going over the, you know, the details of your business plan, that's exactly what I did. And I'll tell you, so the thought was, you know, McKinsey and Bain were, were in our big names in consulting. And those firms make a lot of impact by focusing on, you know, strategy, and a lot of the what stuff that goes on in companies. And the simple thought was, well, you know, what if we build a Bain or McKinsey caliber firm, but that focused exclusively on the who stuff, you know, leadership, culture, um, how to help leaders be successful. So Drucker's like, well, yeah, okay. You know, I kind of see it. I said, well, look, there's no, there's no McKinsey of leadership advisory. There are, you know, great strategy firms. There are great law firms. There are great accounting firms. But yet everyone's sort of in, in love with this concept of, of leadership. You know, surely there should be a best-in-class firm that helps leaders make people decisions. So, G H & Company, McKinsey and Company, you know, I sort of model a lot of, a lot of the firm off of the way McKinsey focuses on the C suite, the way you know McKinsey, Bain, B C G use data, right, mm-hmm. rather than like opinion, in their consulting. So yeah, I guess you know different product, if you will, but you know similar org structure and thought. So it was, it was, you know, bold vision. And it was like, shh, you know, let's do this. And in fact, and another part of it was I wanted to blend psychologists like me with, you know, MBAs from top programs, et cetera, so that the effect that the client would receive is like a very business grounded, very data driven work product that's focused on the topic of of leadership. So it was hard in the early days. I didn't have any money. I didn't have any clients. I didn't know anything. I founded the firm in year two of four years of grad school. So you could imagine I was pretty green uh, when we got you know, GH Smart Incorporated.
1: And so how long has it been and how big are you now?
0: So it's been 24 years and we're 120 people today, over 60 million in revenue in 12 cities around the U.S. and London. And so... That's not bad. I mean, it's not Google. I think like Google was founded like a year, (laughs) a year after I founded GH Smart. So we know the market cap and reach of a Google. But as far as professional service firms go, I'm very proud of how it's turned out. It really is true to the original vision of helping leaders make better people decisions um, and creating kind of a very high performing organization and take care of it while allowing people to have a lot more freedom at work um, than some of those other consulting firms let you have so that we could attract even better people and have a, a more healthy, positive kind of family friendly culture rather than a one where, you know, it's very, very hard to have any balance in your life.
1: Yeah. And and for those who know professional services firms, the ratio of revenue to people, you guys are that is top tier. So you're, you're doing something you. right that people I'm a little envious, but we'll talk about that offline. So part of this process, you wrote this book, Who, which I often refer to and I've heard people refer to as the definitive book on hiring, and it teaches the, the A method for hiring. Can you tell us what is the A method and how did you develop it?
0: Sure. So the Who book is about 11 years old, the firm's 24 years old. So the data that we receive, the client war stories, all the assessments that we did of leaders in the first decade plus of the firm's existence. All that was just a big, valuable data set. And so the thought was, we have best practices, we know they work, let's make it simple. And, you know, have a kind of a step one, step two, step three, step four approach to good hiring. So it was really just codifying a decade's worth of work at that point, and trying to create a framework that's easy. And Bob, you've interacted with folks who use this approach, they oftentimes say, you know, it's very Simple. It's common sense. And then my comeback is, well, good, wonderful. That I appreciate that. But it's very uncommon practice. So the methods that we identify in the Who book are actually, you know, sort of proven methods that have been around in the world of of organizational behavior for, you know, half a century. We just codified it, put some good stories in there and made it simple. And I, I think that's why the simple part matters because everyone's busy and no one wants to you know, implement something that's complex and overly burdensome. So uh, yeah, since it came out in 08, I think it's been number one on Amazon and the topic of hiring ever since. And it, it was today. So I, like you, you, know, those of us who have books, you, you check your Amazon rankings and you make sure you're still relevant in the world. But yeah, we're very uh, very pleased. In fact, we're selling more Who books per week today than we ever have. So the topic remains you know, very strong and uh, the methods still seem to be useful for folks.
1: So, what do companies do most wrong with hiring? I know there's—you probably have a two-page list in front of you—but what what, yeah. are they? what sticks out right away when you talk to most organizations?
0: Gut feel hiring is very common, and, and you know you've seen this both in entrepreneurial companies or or larger corporations, where if you ask people, you know, how do you hire? You get the sense that they're using their intuition, their gut feel. And they're not collecting a lot of data. They're not really thinking about the criteria. And so, you know, that's very, very common. Like at least in my back, what, 25 years ago when I did my PhD work, my research suggested that at least half of the hiring managers or investors or board members out there um, just use a pure gut feel approach. Do you like this person? Do you not like this person? Oh, this person you know, went to my alma mater. Oh, they like the same sports team, like stuff that doesn't matter at all. And predicting someone's performance is very oftentimes uh, the things that get them hired.
1: So Jeff, you're going to be very proud of me when I tell you this story. We've read your book. We're all in on who. I've seen you speak yeah. several times. So someone on LinkedIn wrote an article a few weeks ago to everyone a question because you know that's how you get engagement. And they said, what's your favorite interview question? And they, they tagged me in it too. And yeah. all these responses about this question and that question and all that stuff. So I went in there and I was channeling my Jeff Smart. <laughs> and then I, and I, and I, and I left a comment. I said, look, I'm reading all these questions, and what I've come to understand is that, like, no one actually empirically knows whether these questions work or not, and, and I've come to understand that it's really about the entire process of hiring yes. from A to B, and that there's no, uh, these magic bullet interview questions, you guys have no A-B testing to know that it actually works. And, and it right. just, and they love it. I, everyone was so proud of their <laughs> defining question, and so I thought of you when I said it. Did I answer that correctly? You did, you really did. And it's funny, I, um, in this
0: day and age, I still get asked and, you know, you do, people say like, yeah, you know, like what are the magic interview questions or what's a great interview question. And it's not about like the question, it's about the whole the system of yeah. it. Yeah. Otherwise you just, you don't get a good result. It's funny you remind me. I was at a semiconductor company was having its annual offsite, and I was doing a little chat on how to hire and lead teams. Someone in the back raised his hand and said, "He's like, okay, okay, I know you're gonna like, you know, give us all uh, your approach to hiring, but like, first I just wanted you to know I have the best interview question." (laughs) And I thought, "Well, this what a treat! This is I have a freaking heckler in like minute one of this, you know, offsite of this Fortune 500 company." So the guy goes, "Ah, yeah, Mike," and I said, "Well, please, please uh, entertain us with your question." He said, "I love to ask people, but you got to look." Them right in the eye, and you say, If you could be any kind of animal, what kind of animal would you be, and why? And everyone laughed, and and I said, Well, that's really entertaining. What you know, how effective is it in in hiring? He said, Well, I don't know, we have a horrible hiring success rate, but at least it makes the drudgery of the hiring process less boring. And everyone laughed to that, too. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of homegrown interview questions or methods, and there are is a very short list of approaches that you know, work really well and a, a very long list of approaches that just don't get you to the results that you want.
1: Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best in class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great looking car the new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you wanna find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role case in point last year. I asked the CEO of a major ski resort, how he got his job. And he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply in a given month. Over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place on LinkedIn. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, what occurred to me is a lot of people can point to their best people they've hired and say, oh, and so-and-so had a great answer to that question, but they might not know how many amazing people they disqualified who didn't yeah. answer that question well, who would have been a performer. That's why it's just not, it's this whole notion of these voodoo questions. They're just not statistically valid.
0: Yes, agreed. And it's not people's fault. I mean, you, we don't get trained in how to hire people in high school or you know college or even even in most grad schools these days, or even in the workplace, it's just, you know, folks know that the topic's important, and it feels like a no-win situation, and that's part of the fun of the work we do in this very narrow, but hopefully important space, because, you know, there are very clear methods at work, and fear not, you know, it, it is possible to increase your hiring success rate from the abysmal 50%, which is average throughout the world, in hiring success as defined by, you know, a year later, did you regret hiring that person or not? (laughs) And so half the time people are like, yeah, that was a a hiring mistake. But if you can increase from 50% success to 90% success, like, wouldn't you want to know what that formula is and, and, you know, to follow the best practices?
1: And without delivering us an audible version of who, can you give us a little overview of framework of what a good process looks like for a company, a process versus... Sure. Bunch of interview questions.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll keep it super brief. But like, if what you don't want to do is bring people in and then ask them stupid qu- questions <laughs> that no matter, what you don't want to do is be, you know, very disorganized and it's frustrating for candidates. What you don't want to do is take a lot of time, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks as your good candidates, you know, get snapped up other places. And what you don't want to do is use your highly biased gut feel you know, when hiring people. Um, so those are the what not to do, is the sort of voodoo methods. So what, you know, what do you do? All you have to do is four things and you, you have a snowball's chance of approaching the 90% hiring success rate. And the four things in this method are just simply, uh, one, you create a scorecard for what success means in, in a role. And without getting into too much depth there, all it is is, yes, it has to be written down. Yes, it lists the outcomes they expect someone to achieve in a role not the ideal profile that you know not the past looking um stuff that people sometimes use as shorthand for what they're looking for you know someone with 10 years of experience blah blah, blah. no a scorecard basically says hey for this role you know here are the measurable outcomes we need this person to achieve here's some of the competencies that we think are really important for our firm culture stuff etc so basically scorecard is, is just like a set of criteria so once you have that you're off to the races. The second step is source. Like how do you source good talent? There are bad ways and good ways to source good talent. So you have enough candidates that one, you know, before we hopped on this call, you and I were talking about how so many folks we see today are struggling to source talent because the unemployment rate is so low, et cetera. On the third step is called select where you do pull out some good proven, you know, rigorous interview methods to capture data about people. And by capturing data, you can make better decisions than just using your gut feel. And then the fourth and final step is called sell, where we we looked at what are the things that make someone say yes to your job offer. And we identified five things that seem to make people accept their job offers, whether it's for entrepreneurial-sized companies or megacorps.
1: Yeah. I want to double click on a, on a bunch of these, a couple of these. The first is the scorecard, which I think is the most important thing because it gets everyone started on the same page. And I, I do a lot of channeling of Jeff. I have a lot of people that call me, you know, we're in marketing uh, industry and they say, oh, I, I want to ask you a question. I'm, I'm, we're hiring a sales and marketing person. And I go, uh-oh. <laughs> because I I just have seen, I'm like, well, are they sales or are they marketing or do they have sales metrics or do they have marketing metrics? Like I just more than anything for me, that one always leads to like, someone's going to be pissed in six months. And the scorecard just forces everyone to define, I I don't know whether you or someone else said, like if in six months, if you had to write a check or not write a check, what are the things that you would need this person to do?
0: Hmm, that's nice. That wasn't me, but I, I like that as a litmus test of, of whether they're uh, adding value or not.
1: So yeah, if you, if, you wrote, if you were to pay them all the money or nothing, like what would they have had right. to get done? That's what someone said. Yeah.
0: ah, oh, that's cool. Uh, yeah, I like that. Yeah, I think it's like, um, so you're hitting a theme that I think is important. Having a vague or very broad scorecard for a role is dangerous because it's really hard to find a person who's good at the like implicit unspoken things that you need them to do um, that are hard but important for a role um, if the way you define the role is like super broad and I, i feel your pain brother on on marketing roles or sales and marketing roles i do see a lot of companies big and small who, if they don't go through the, you know, the the brief amount of work that it takes to say, okay, what what do we really need this person to accomplish? What is it? And across the spectrum of marketing, my goodness gracious, sales and marketing, you know, do you need a sales animal who's out there knocking on doors, bringing in closing deals? Do You need a lead gen person who's identifying targets. Do you need to do some basic strategy work? You know, is it marketing communications? Like what what is it? And these are all different skill sets. You know, as you know, that people are really only good at. A small number of things, so that's why it's really important to make a scorecard that's, uh, in my humble opinion, very narrowly focused and quantitative. And so, and so, yeah. If you ask yourself the question, what does success mean for this role, and then try to put some numbers on it. And entrepreneurs fight me on this a little. Fellow entrepreneurs, I'm an entrepreneur. You're an entrepreneur. But like, don't don't fight the thought of um, what does success look like. So if it's a lead generation sort of a marketing role, well, how many leads? How many leads by when you could have sort of input metrics like that, or you could have outcome metrics like actual sales, gross margin, that kind of stuff, close rates, et cetera. So anything that basically says what you want them to be doing or what you want them to be accomplishing should go on the scorecard. And then important culture elements. So you you keep winning awards for culture and being a great leader, Bob, and you – and many others realize that, you know, culture matters a lot. So putting what's special about your culture also on the scorecard in yeah. the buzzwords of your own firm. So whereas other firms are X, you know, we want to be Y. We're going to put that on the scorecard so we might make sure that we hire people who match the culture. Because at least half of the reason that mishires happen is due to culture, not due to a, like a technical deficit.
1: All right, so we're gonna take a quick break for a word from our sponsors, and then we're gonna dive some more into interviewing and hiring and culture with Jeff. When you started your business, I'm sure you didn't dream about all those admin tasks, like drafting proposals and contracts and tracking down payments. Of course you didn't, and that's why you need HoneyBook. HoneyBook's an innovative online management tool that organizes your client communications, booking, contracts, and invoices all in one place. It makes it really easy to run your business better, Professional templates, e-signatures, and built-in automation keep everything on track and make you look good. They can even consolidate services you already use, such as QuickBooks, Google Suite, Excel, and MailChimp. And that's why it's the number one choice for client and business management for freelancers and business owners. And right now, HoneyBook is offering our listeners 50% off when you visit honeybook.com slash elevate. Payment is flexible and this promotion applies whether you pay monthly or annually. So go to honeybook.com slash elevate for 50% off your first year. That's honeybook.com slash elevate. You can have your favorite restaurants come to you with DoorDash. Ordering is easy. Open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and your food will be delivered to you wherever you are. DoorDash is a regular go-to in our household. We have a group of hungry teenagers who all want to eat something different. My kids use DoorDash. My wife and I also use it when we want a good meal, but don't have the time to cook. Some of our favorite restaurants now have delivery available for the first time. In fact, there are over 3,400 restaurants in 3,300 cities now on DoorDash. Right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter promo code ELEVATE. That's $5 off your first order when you download the DoorDash app from the App Store and enter promo code ELEVATE. Don't forget, that's promo code elevate for $5 off your first order from DoorDash. All right, and we're back. So Jeff, right before the break, we were talking about the scorecard and really how to set that up. Then the other one I think getting into here, because we don't have time to go into all of them, is is the interviewing. So what what is the biggest mistake that most people make when interviewing? When you see companies or people, you're know, like, that is just not working.
0: <laughs> so one very common, horrendous mistake and I, I learned of this one before I even started our firm. This is just from doing the, the literature review of, you know, interviewing methods and like what works and what doesn't work over 50 years of research, thousands of studies. So research and practice say, don't ask people hypothetical interview questions. So like a hypothetical interview question is, you know, Bob, how would you resolve a conflict with a teammate if you joined GH smart. And like, what might Bob say if I ask you a hypothetical question like that?
1: I might give you a hypothetical answer.
0: I think he (laughs) would give me a hypothetical answer. And then I'm sitting here left, not really knowing what the real Bob is. Is real Bob is collaborative and as win-win oriented as his answer is in this hypothetical scenario. Um, Or is the real Bob, does he have like really strained teamwork skills? So don't ask people hypothetical questions. Their entire interview methods based on giving people Pretend situations and judging their answers, the research and practice suggests it's a, a very inaccurate way of evaluating somebody. So, no hypotheticals, please. What else? Oh, taking answers at face value without asking follow up questions is a big mistake. So, if I'm watching a novice interviewer and someone says, um, Oh, yeah, I, I, I performed very well on that job and then the interviewer goes oh okay cool well let me ask you the next question they kind of move on to the next thing you know whereas a a better answer would be like oh you perform well like what were your targets and what what were your actual results how did your peers perform relative to you you know asking about actually collecting more information Um, we find asking what how and tell me more questions are very helpful you know what what were your targets what were the results how did you do that Uh, tell me more you know these are ways to get more depth and better data out of answers rather than just uh, letting someone tell you one thing and then move on to the next topic
1: and ask those questions and then don't let the person off the hook like sit with it. i think a lot of interviewers jump in too quickly right and let them let them there's a little uncomfortable silence and they let them off the hook
0: that's right so don't let them off the hook i remember i asked a. um A concrete pumping entrepreneur, like his business was pumping concrete. He's a real tough guy, you know, real calloused, handshake type gentleman. And I remember I was helping a venture capital firm decide whether or not to invest in his business. And I I also had a newbie from my company watching me interview this guy. And I asked the guy, what were some things that didn't go so well at that stage of his career? And he's kind of like, oh, I can't really think of anything. You know, it was all hunky dory. So I sort of like eyeballed him and used silence as a tool to help him tell us some of the things that didn't go so well. So, you know, in in an interview, you really want to get the good data, the positives. You really do want to get the negative data, mistakes, et cetera. So in that case, I remember he was my record. He. He gave me at least 20 full real seconds of silence Hmm. before he then kind of looked down at his shoes and looked up and said, well, I mean, it wasn't perfect. And I said, "Well, okay. what were some things that in retrospect you could have done better at that stage? And then, you know, he told us some pretty insightful things. So, yes, uh, don't let interviewees get off the hook if you ask them a tough question and they, you know, they act like they don't want to answer it
1: by the way one of, one of your tips and you know people are going to have to read the book we're not going to give it all away but cuz you said something there and I and I know it because I've I've heard a lot and practiced it but I don't think people would pick it up you said you said tell me about that back then or in that time period so this mm-hmm. is not, this is also part of your psychological warfare container right which is when when you're putting that in historical context it actually gives them permission to be more truthful right i think so yeah
0: yeah we're big fans of the truth i've a broad idea, which is pretty simple, which is just uh, everyone is an A player at something. Yeah. So I, I really do, I mean, this is in our, our professional work, but personally, I really think it's important for folks to be in the right roles. If people are in the right roles, they learn and grow and they're happy and they can feed their families and you know, good things happen. When hiring goes bad and people are in the wrong roles, like really bad things happen. And so, um, yes, in the interview, allowing folks a platform to give us, you know, the truth is very important. And I like that. Yeah. That's one of the, the psychological tips is as you're having someone talk through their whole career, you can emphasize like, Hey, look back then. Wow. What were that? Three jobs ago. Yeah. What were some of the things that didn't go as well and, and mm-hmm. allows them the safety to share.
1: Hey, Elevate listeners, whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout 36 percent better on average compared to other leading platforms i advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to shopify and as a buyer what i love about buying from shopify enabled sites is that they already know who i am and i don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info the Pay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash elevate. Why, why did people really not like you back then in that past job? Right. <laughs>
0: exactly. You can ask that. And if you have rapport, it gives you licensed tasks, to really tough questions. Oh, okay. In that recent job, who was a peer that you didn't really get along with if there are any, Oh, you know, that was Jane. Oh, okay. Well, what, you know, what was Jane's side of the story? What, what, what was Jane like to work with? What would she say some of your strengths and weaker areas were if you built good rapport with, Folks that you're interviewing, you really can ask them, you know, very direct questions, and and their answers are oftentimes super helpful in figuring out if they're a good match.
1: And what what's your most favorite interview story of probing questions or or tell me more, where it just went somewhere you weren't expecting it to go?
0: Well, our our world famous slapper story comes to mind.
1: <laughs> that sounds like a good one.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was pretty shocking. So we have this thing, and I can. We don't need everybody to buy the book. They can buy the Who book if they want, but I'll I'll tell them the actual questions. When you're interviewing someone, you find out for each job they had, what they're hired to do, what they accomplished that they're proud of, and get some examples. Um, You ask them what were some low points or mistakes during that job. You ask them about the people that they worked with, bosses especially. You know, what was that boss like to work with? What do you think he or she will say you were like to work with? And, you know when we do reference checks etc and then the last question for each job why did you leave that job so that that one's interesting because your good candidates generally will leave jobs in a good way they'll have done a good job they'll be getting promoted either within the company or, or hired by a, you know, a competitor or a customer or something candidates that are are high risk will have some weird story about why they're leaving jobs And in this particular case, this person had a real can to answer, you know, when you're interviewing someone and they seem to have like told that story before.
1: Yeah. So something triggered for you.
0: Yes. And he's like, uh, he's like, oh, uh, oh, I left because I said, well, why'd you leave that job? And he said he left because he had a difference of opinion with the CEO over the strategy of the company. And I thought, well, okay, I don't, I don't exactly know what that means. So I, I played dumb and asked a little more like, well, what kind of difference of opinion? And he described, he said, well, it all kind of came to a head at this one board meeting. I said, well, what happened at the board meeting? So, you know, you try to keep it very conversational and ask questions to get more info. And he said that the bottom line is the company wasn't doing well. The person I'm talking about was the head of sales. And the board said, well, the the, uh, chair of the board said, if we don't improve our sales over these next couple of quarters, we're going to have to get ourselves a new head of sales. And the CEO is like nodding and saying, you know, yep, yep. That's what I've told the head of sales. And the head of sales was was the person I was interviewing. So he told me that he basically said something very unkind to the CEO. He said to the CEO, well, you know what your problem is, is we all now know why your mom named you what she did. (laughs) And and I said, well, I don't get it. And he said, well, the CEO's name was Richard, but you know, he went by the nickname of Richard. And so I said, well, so you you said that to the CEO in front of the board at the board meeting, it sounds like. And and my candidate said, yeah, yep. You know, that's what I said. I showed him. I said, what happened next? (laughs) And so the candidate told me that, you know, the CEO called a a break and then followed him back to his office and the CEO fired him and just said, look, your numbers have been lousy and I, I didn't appreciate your comment back there. Why don't you pack up your stuff? To which my candidate told me that he and by the way, this candidate had led his hockey league in high school in penalty minutes, he told me earlier in the interview. So I was like, all right, this is going to be a good story. Uh, I said, well, what happened? And the candidate said to the CEO, you know, no one's ever put you in your place. And the CEO said, well, I don't know who's going to put me in my place today and started walking out. But then my candidate jumped up out of his chair and slapped the CEO in the face. And I, I tried not to look stunned when the candidate told me that story. I, you know, being a good interviewer, I said, well, what kind of a slap was it? And so, you know, as it turns out, it was like a big open-handed frontal assault on the CEO. So this candidate then admitted that um, he calls it his $3 million slap. And I asked him, well, why, why do you call it that? And uh, his stock options, which he would have gotten if he had just gotten fired or left the company um, because he slapped the CEO in the face at a board meeting, um, he he didn't get those. So um, my candidate then revealed all that, but it was only after the probing questions and finding out more of the story behind, you know, the whole like difference of opinion on the strategy answer. So that just goes to show you got to watch it when folks are you know, giving you kind of a canned answer and, and there's an opportunity to ask the follow up questions to find out the full story.
1: Yeah, even as you told that story, and I'm thinking about how many people would have stopped at 10 different points, and it's already pretty bad and pretty salacious, right? But And they would have been like, that's bad. But you you just kept going with it either, you know, because you know how to do this. And I think a lot of us probably stop um, rather than going until the end.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And we get nervous, or we think, oh, I don't know, is this appropriate to, you know, ask follow-up questions? This is a really touchy, sensitive topic this person's, you know, revealing. And the answer is, you know, as, as long as the questions are legal, so obviously don't ask people illegal questions. Don't ask them where they're born. Don't ask them about sexual orientation. Don't ask people if they're pregnant. Don't ask, you know, moms or dads about their interest in having more babies. You know, don't, you know, religion, uh, ethnicity, lots of uh, questions that are not appropriate to ask people because they have nothing to do with their job performance. But if it's just the person's a little bit uncomfortable, and it sounds like, you know, they're really telling a juicy story, I say get out the popcorn, use reflective listening, and really understand that moment in their history.
1: And what's the border between? I remember we had to talk to our team a couple of years ago because we were just passing along too many people in the interview process. So what happened was they'd say, "Oh, I really like this person, but here's a concern of mine," right? And then they pass it along. We were making the right decisions in the end. We were doing about three times as many interviews as we needed to do because people didn't feel. Not they didn't feel empowered, but they didn't want to really dig in and get uncomfortable with whatever that seems like Jeff doesn't have a great attention to detail. So rather than noting that and moving on, it's like, let's really dig in with Jeff. Like, what's what's the boundary of sort of um, I know you want rapport, but and, and funny, we had a consultant at the time who said, look. Yeah, you, know, you can either get comfortable uncomfortable in the interview or it's much more uncomfortable and you have to tell them it's not working out <laughs> eight weeks into their job. Yeah. So how do you balance That's this right. rapport building with this comfort and get the answers that you need to get?
0: Yeah. So you're saying like how do you balance the importance of rapport and not wanting to like completely alienate this candidate with the importance of getting the data? Yeah. Yeah. So I think this is like a non obvious answer. <laughs> Um, I think that boundary is higher, meaning you can really push it more if you have done a great job of building genuine rapport with the candidate. So if you haven't built really good rapport with the candidate, I don't think you have any right to ask them anything, even like, you know, remotely sensitive or or probing because they're they're not going to like it.
1: Like what kind of slap was it? (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, but you can't ask that. <laughs> and I actually asked the guy if it left a white or a red handprint on the CEO's face. I was just really interested and in asked a lot of questions. I had good rapport. So if you don't have good rapport, any question you ask, even asking someone what their you know, revenue target was for last year, selling that software in the Northeast or whatever, right? Like, you know, they could be prickly. But if you build good rapport, and there, there are a couple of ninja tactics for building really good rapport in interviews, I'm happy to share with you. I mean, almost nothing's off the table. You can really, you can really follow up, reflect what you hear them saying, and you know, ask for more info, and they'll and they'll share it. So I think it's really a, a question of, you know, how well you can build rapport with the candidate.
1: So you shouldn't come in guns a blazing. That's what I would take from that.
0: Right yeah. there, you go. Don't come in guns a blazing. Have a we say a um, a posture of intense curiosity. So if you have a tone of intense curiosity oh tell me about that oh that's interesting you know how so oh you know was that international or domestic sales like you know if you have like a tone of intense curiosity which I think is a very professional tone and you're engaged it, it'll make them want to tell you the truth which is wonderful if you come in guns of blazing where you're either arrogant or you're like I'm the boss and you're the subordinate or I'm the expert and you're not I one person come up to me at a International Entrepreneurship Conference. And he told me that he was having a, a tough time getting people to come back for interviews. Like they, like, didn't like they didn't like him and they didn't like his company. And I was like, well, what are you doing? And he said, well, you know, I saw it in a movie once. He's like, but I like to, for a sales candidate especially, I like to pull out a pen and I like to kind of scream in their face, sell me this pen. And I'm like, are you serious? Um, and he's like, yeah, 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 I do that. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then he also said, I like to intimidate them by holding up their resume, if they have a printed one or their LinkedIn, and just sort of like dismissively throw it to the side on my desk and say, I don't see anything impressive in this resume that would make me want to hire you. And I'm like, oh, so you you try to intimidate the person who's right out of the gates, it sounds like. And the guy's like, yeah, yeah, you know, just really put pressure on them to see if they crack and see if they can handle the culture here. And so I asked the guy, you know, is it working or not working? He said, you know, it's not really working because people (laughs) don't really come back. for follow-up interviews, and I said, okay, well, I just said, look, I'm going to tell you some tough love just because I want this to be useful to you, but, like, your entire approach to interviewing is is all wrong, so whatever you're doing, like, don't ever do any of that ever again, and let's talk about a better approach yet to treat people with respect. I almost act like, you know, your job is to be, like, a a concierge at at a luxury hotel type attitude, like, oh, hey, can, you know, Bob, can I get you something to drink? And like, oh, wonderful. I, I look forward to hearing more about your story. Like, you know, be be like really genuinely interested and professional to folks. And that's how you build rapport. That's how you get good data. That's how you make good hiring decisions. Right. But you have kind of um, approach of like, I want to stress them out in the interview process. You know, unfortunately, doesn't uh, lead to good hires.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, I know you have a lot of these amazing stories that go back to your career. I, you know, I'll point out probably some of the greatest hits, you know, if they're 10 or something years ago, this was also before Glassdoor, where if you do this stuff and yeah. you have a one out of five interview rating, like you're, no one's going to even apply to your company, not even come back, right?
0: That's right. I mean, you're winning awards on Glassdoor. And you realize how valuable that is for sending a signal to your your candidates. I, I, I'm with you. Yeah, so, I mean, how much better it would be on Glassdoor if folks would say things like, oh, their interview process was thorough, but, you know, very professional, very well done. You know, this company really seems to have its act together, you know, like that kind of thing. Much better than, you know, oh my gosh, I interviewed with these bozos and, you know, it was like a carnival.
1: Yeah, the owner screamed at me and told me to sell him a pen uh, that wouldn't, wouldn't go, <laughs> me the pen. go over well, well. Well, there are a lot of experts uh, who teach but don't do. Do as I say, not as I do. But as you said before, GH Smart has really seen incredible growth. You know, what, what's your approach to culture? And clearly you're getting hiring right, but in terms of kind of retention yeah. and creating a great place to work.
0: So I, I was fortunate 10 years ago, one of my young partners at the time, Randy Street, is just a great leader. So as founder and chairman, I was you know, running the firm day to day. And I thought, all right, I, I think I'd like to narrow my role you know, more around brands and business development and that kind of stuff. I'd really love to have someone else run the firm. So I will. what I'm about to describe to you is thanks to Randy Street and his leadership in putting in place just a fabulous culture at our firm. So we... I'm mean, yet to be deliberate, so I don't know how you do it. I'll just like share how, how we did it. Um, we went through a laborious process of, of really soul searching, like who are we? Why do we exist? You know, why should we be here as a firm? What parts of culture are important and not important? What? How do we differentiate? What do those of us who came out of other top firms love or hate about the firms we came from? I mean, it's a very in depth, two year process of you know, this is like over a decade ago where we're just like, let's really identify the desired culture we want. And then organizational behavior suggests that you have five levers, and this is a no, no book we've written. This is secret stuff I'm doing just for your podcast. Right. Um, so five levers you can pull to make culture happen. I learned this just through School of Hard Knocks and also in grad school I worked with a professor, VJ Sate who had written a bunch of textbooks on culture. So like a, anyway, the five levers are who you hire, what you tell them you expect, Number three, what you train people on. Number four, what you reward. That's a huge one. one. And number, yeah. And number five is, I I can't think of a fancier way to say it, but just like the structure, you know, sort of reporting relationships, you know, physical structure, geographic kind of stuff. So who you hire, what you expect, what you train folks on, what you reward, and then the, the kind of, you know, structures you have set up in your firm. Those are your five levers. We cranked them very hard in the direction of we wanted to have a culture of freedom, uh, a culture of being able to give people feedback to accelerate their development, but not have it be scary. You know, have it be like supportive and almost like, you know, the way families talk to each other as opposed to stilted and, and overly formal. Transparency came out of something we really wanted. So we decided we're going to share all our financials with everybody in the firm internally you know a, a number of things just came out as like you know here are the ways that we're going to architect and really promote the culture um, that we want, and um, we do twice a year surveys and we're like constantly constantly trying to measure make sure we're not going off the rails on some of the core tenets of our culture that you know show up in our values, et cetera so it's a lot of stuff you've you know heard before, but I think i don't know if you agree or disagree, it actually takes real work and and deliberate work to. Hone the culture that you want at your firm. Every firm has a culture. The question is just, you know, have you been articulate about what you want it to be, and yeah. are you mindful? of the forces that
1: shape it. I would say you have it by design or by default. And and mm-hmm. I have a similar but different framework. I think I, well, well, the things I've seen in great cultures, I, it's either five things or I think three things and two modifiers. So I think consistent thing I've seen is that they have a vision. They have real values, not the like, core value, art, integrity, you know, stuff all over the wall. Right. Um, I, I say the real core values are a differentiated point of view that they actualize. And then they have goals and targets and, and the modifiers yes. for those on me are, are clarity and consistency. So great cultures have, yes. have clear vision, clear values, clear targets, you know, a consistent vision, consistent targets, consistent values. And there's just this alignment between what people say and what they do.
0: Yes. I love that. Yeah, It's fun. It's, Building a a healthy culture, and you you know this as well as anyone. It's so fun too. In addition to yeah. being you know, like a smart thing to do, and like making sure customers and employees and you know stakeholders get what they need and and all that, it's just it's freaking fun, and it's your own leadership laboratory. I think it's like one of the, along with hiring, you know, one of the very shortlisted things that are most important for a founder or a CEO to get right.
1: Yeah, I mean, why do you want to be at a company where everyone doesn't like each other, yells at each other? I mean, like, they can't be fun and the the output can't be good.
0: Yes. And was it, there's a Gallup poll less than a year ago I saw that suggested, I'm going to misquote this, so pardon people can Google it and figure out, but it was something like 64% of people hate their job. (laughs) I mean, not even like sort of like begrudgingly coming to work, but like at least half of folks just really hate it. And and this is a, an incredible value that, that leaders, business leaders, not-for-profit leaders, you know, even government leaders, leaders of organizations can do to elevate the quality of human life is to, you know, build a really healthy culture. And it takes work and it's hard in their trade-offs, but I've certainly seen the light as you have on the, the value of, of doing so.
1: No, Absolutely. Now, normally, as a last question, I would ask, "What's a personal and professional mistake you learn the most from?" But I think in this context, I have to—I really have to ask you—what's a hiring mistake that you've learned the most from in your in your career?
0: Ah, oh, <laughs> man, because so I had another other mistake that wasn't a hiring
1: mistake. Or, or if you have another one, God, I'll you. give you two. Okay, I'll take two.
0: You're fun to talk with, and I hope your <laughs> listeners find these stories remotely useful or valuable. I'll tell you the mistake that i thought of as a, prepping for this and then I'll think about hiring mistake we'll end on that note one of the worst mistakes I, I made in business was was being super arrogant in offering advice to a client that was well outside the lane that we were asked to comment on so <laughs> yeah. I don't know this sounds like a dumb one but um, I basically pop off to this company this billionaire investor was investing in a company and we were hired to you know, help them get to know the management team but I'm I'm talking about all sorts of stuff way well outside of the the lane, um, which is kind of a rookie mistake. But the net of it was because we're so compelling on the the people side, they also listened to us commenting on their strategy and their product set and like how much they should pay for this thing, right? I was like really going haywire with my ego and, and, you know, thinking I was going to advise on a number of parts of the deal. Anyway, that billionaire put, this is like kind of like series B rounds, like 30 million bucks into this thing. Um, a lot more than they had planned to because of, I was so persuasive. As it turns out, although our take on the people part was pretty accurate, our irresponsible take on the other stuff wasn't uh, accurate. They lost 100% of the investment um, uh-huh. and I felt horrible. And so I don't know what that translates into more broadly, but basically knowing, knowing your value in this world and then being very comfortable playing your strengths and you know, kind of being very careful if you're going to go outside of your lane of expertise was the lesson learned on that one.
1: That was a good one. And now you're going to give us the bonus one.
0: Yeah, the bonus one is, uh, let's see here, hiring mistakes. Um, There's a clear one I have in my mind and I'll share it now. So I think we have a 95% hiring success rate within GH Smart over the last 20 years. So it's super high, but 95 isn't 100. So yeah, I mean, we definitely have made hiring mistakes. So here's one. We have a teamwork culture. Team, team, team. We love teams. We have client teams. We team together. We're very communicative and very teamy. And we hired a lone ranger. So we hired someone who wasn't a team oriented person. And so we worked the process, lots of data, and they had performed very well. But the way that they had performed, I, I missed it. The way they had been successful was to be an individual expert. And they were not very good at communicating with peers or others on the team. For example, one of my colleagues set up a lunch for this new person to meet some clients in their geography and the new person no showed the lunch like just didn't show like stood up the, cli- the client and my colleague and like didn't even apologize for it and so we had realized that we had a gap actually in our reference script um, which was that we weren't finding out we weren't getting as much input from peers and so while this person you know really sucked up well to clients and bosses and they, they leveraged junior people pretty well. Um, they had a big gap in their peer relationships that we, we really didn't pick up as well as we could um, in the interviews or in the references. So since then we plugged it with you know more peer, how'd your peer rate you, here you know, give me some peers to talk to, that kind of thing. Um, but that was really painful because what, what we found is this person really wouldn't be willing to you know, invest in peer relationships and therefore wouldn't be successful at our firm. So they lasted uh, six weeks and then we just said, hey look, you know, you seem to really like working solo and we're a team oriented place. Why don't you go work solo? And that's probably going to be a better match for you. And they agreed and went. One of our clients in Southeast Asia said, we, we released their soul into the economy yeah. and they <laughs> and, uh, and they did fine. And, you know, it's, again, it's all back to fit. But, yeah, that one, I felt like I was personally responsible for that one. I'd missed it in the interviews and, and uh, hadn't talked to any peers.
1: All right. Well, those are both very good. I think there's a lot of people can take from both of those stories. Well, how can people get a hold of you and your work and your company?
0: Yeah. So jeffsmart.com is my website that has a bunch of free tools and interview guides and scorecard templates on it. So geoffsmart.com is my personal author website, which has goodies that folks can get for free. And that's uh, for our Who Book Power PowerScore, and leadocracy. My colleagues also have a book that just came out a year and a half ago called The CEO Next Door, which is about how to become and succeed as CEO. So all of our our book content and free templates are available there for folks.
1: Okay, great. Jeff, thanks for uh, sharing some time with us today and your story. I I have gotten a ton out of your work, and it's been a a huge part of how we've improved our our hiring culture at Acceleration Partners. So I hope hope our listeners will enjoy the same and, and appreciate you spending some time with us. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much, Bob. All right. To our listeners, thanks for tuning into the Elevate podcast. We'll include links to Jeff and his books on the detailed episode page at Robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review it helps new users discover the show. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can just select the library icon, click on Elevate, scroll down to the bottom and leave your review. It's that easy, I promise. It only takes a few seconds and would be much appreciated. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating.